Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It looks like Congress has managed to get the National Defense Authorization Law done before that December 31st deadline. As always, the bill is chock full of items federal contractors should pay attention to. For five of them, we turn to the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And let's begin, David, by saying this has been as close to the wire as I think Congress has come. We came close uh, a few times before, but Tom, you know, it's 60 years in a row that we've passed the National Defense Authorization Act. And so it has two factors. One is it's essential for defense. But the second is because it's one of the few bills that you think will pass, it has a magnetic attraction for other legislation, which may or may not actually matter to DOD, but matters to Congress. Right. So it's got a lot in it. Right. And so we are usually concerned with the 800 series of provisions. That's where they put procurement. And the first one you have pointed out is preventing conflicts of interest for entities that provide certain consulting services for the Department of Defense. That's the title of it. What's in there that we need to know about? Well, first of all, uh, consulting services is is defined differently in, in statute than it is in regulation. And so that's a big question of what constitutes consulting services. And the bill's not abundantly clear there, so that'll have to be worked out in the implementation. But the basic idea is DOD should not be doing business with companies that are also doing business with China, with Russia, with individuals who are on the do not watch the watch list, the terrorist watch list and, and other entities, companies, or other entities. So that's kind of a good idea. The question is, how do you implement it in such a way that it actually hurts them more than it hurts us? And so, you know, there were earlier provisions that were proposed that clearly would have ended, ended up hurting both DOD and government contractors more than it hurt China. Uh, now I think it's been revised, and uh, PSC certainly helped uh, helped along those lines uh, to something that is probably manageable. First of all, you don't want to do business with somebody who's also doing business with China. But companies are big, and they may have multiple entities that are across the board that aren't doing business with DOD. So it's possible under this provision to have a mitigation plan that says nobody working on the DOD work will be working on the China or the Russia or the other entity work as well. That's a reasonable thing. And then if all else fails, there's a waiver provision so that DOD can, in fact, get what it needs. We are pretty comfortable with this final outcome. Right. And there are companies that have European origins, for example, that work for federal entities, including defense, that have that provision where they have a separate board of directors and a firewall between them and the European or Canadian entity that would keep them working for the government, even if the European part, say, is doing business with Russia. That, that, that's exactly the case. And, and you could end up, you know, with, with uh, that being part of the mitigation plan. In addition, Tom, it's important to recognize that if you ban U.S. companies from doing business, that doesn't necessarily mean the business won't get done. It'll just get done by another company in another country. So, you know, China ends up better off and we end up worse off. That's not necessarily a good thing. So this is a reasonable outcome for everybody. All right. And then there's Section 824, modification and extension of temporary authority to modify certain contracts and options based on, here it comes, the impacts of inflation. That is, can they shell out more if the contractor is experiencing inflation? Well, this has been a problem, obviously, for the last couple of years. When inflation rates hit 8 9% last year, companies were saying, hey, we bid based upon, you know, 0.25% Fed rates and, and inflation that was in the low ones and twos, and now we're having to perform. It's not only the impact of inflation, there's an added impact from the cost of workers, right? Because we're still in America, we have 
one and a half vacant jobs for every person looking for work. So it's kind of a seller's market, right? You, you've seen this across the board. No company, by the way, I do this every meeting we have with PSC members. I say, raise your hand if you have all the workers you need. I have yet to see a hand go up, Tom. I mean, this is a very competitive environment. So costs have gone up, whether it's directly from inflation or whether it's indirectly from the shortage of workers. And that wasn't in your bid. And so the tendency for the government is to say, hey, you bid it, you perform it, right? You suck it up. Well, eventually there's no up to suck here. And, uh, and you, you've got to, we'll have to patent that phrase. <laughs> there's no up to suck here. Yeah. No, no up to suck anymore. Um, so this, this is a, a provision that was in last year's bill. Technically, the provision requires a separate appropriation, which hasn't happened yet and may not happen. Uh, that's a subject of another conversation on this show. Um, but what we found was that just the existence of the authority made it possible for programs, if they wanted to accommodate the increased costs that the company had as part of the deliverables, Within available funds, it gave them the flexibility to do so. So we were really pleased to see this provision back in the bill this year. We are speaking with David Bertoz, CEO and president of the Professional Services Council. And there's still one other, a pilot program, and this is under Section 874, to incentivize progress payments. So that's, again, not a full-blown program, but they're going to try out something here. They're going to try it out. So so basically the idea is that because a company can't get reimbursed for the interest costs on loans and it has to finance its work before the, it delivers the products or the end results to the government, the government sometimes issues progress payments. You've made 80% of the progress, so you get a certain percentage of the cost you've had up to that point reimbursed along the way, right? So, but pe- periodically DOD will try to tie those progress payments to something other than progress, that is, other than delivering on the contract, like maybe a uh, the eligibility of your business systems or, or, you know, your cost uh, proposals being accurate, et cetera, or being complete. And those are what I, I would call input measures. So we've resisted at PSC the idea of tying progress payments to inputs. We want to tie progress payments to progress on the actual performance of the work, right? So the, uh, the, the bill uh, previously proposed something that would essentially allow contractors to make more in progress payments if they had more of those inputs lined up. We objected to that and say, no, it's fine to increase progress payments, but do it based upon actual results. This pilot program actually isn't, it has some preambles it needs to set up. It's based on criteria the DOD hasn't yet developed and they're going to have to develop. So it'll be a while before we see the pilot, but it's certainly better than tying everything to inputs rather than results. And given DOD's movement on some of these provisions in NDAAs, pilot programs, new rules, it could be four or five years, realistically. We've seen pilots come and go, uh, you know, not on my list here, but, you know, uh, uh, we've had a a pilot, presumably they let losers pay in the event of a frivolous protest. Um, That pilot never got off the ground, in part because nobody could figure out pays what and have that be consistently applied without it automatically inflating costs that you would know you'd get reimbursed for. Um, Now there was an attempt to try to do that again. Everyone agrees that protests, uh, you know, need to be managed, right? But, uh, and and they can get in the way of successful performance, but they're also, Tom, the best way we have of holding the government accountable for following its own procedures, right? And so there's a balance off that needs to be played out there. Right. And so that provision did not make it in. That was in the House provision. The loser pays for frivolous protests, but not in there. Right. But but we have agreed with the committee staff that we'll bring some ideas to them 
uh, before they start marking up the FY25 bill. Imagine that we're a quarter of the way through the century here before they start marking up the FY25 bill next spring. Okay, it's the Roaring Twenties in some ways, more than more than one. And then a final provision that did not get in there, Senate Section 868, Tech Data Rights. And what was proposed and what did not make it on that one? The proposal, and it may well have come from the Defense Department itself, but the proposal in the Senate bill was that would, would give the Pentagon broad authority to essentially grab technical data and intellectual property from companies in a time of conflict or contingency operation without really specifying uh, exactly what the need for that would be, right? And so th- this seemed like a, um, a, a problem that was not well enough defined that you knew this solution was mandated and how would you bound the application of it? You know, the Pentagon could, there's always a contingency operation going somewhere. Uh, it might even be hurricane response, right? Or, or fire response. And so uh, those are the kinds of things that, that we thought needed a lot more clarification. So this is another area for discussion as we go into FY25. You certainly want DOD to be able to get what it needs in time of conflict. So that's not an issue. So it's a question that we'll tackle in next year's bill. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll see you on the other side of legislation. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. 
Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, 
And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.